From Social Service Ashi, I am Jing Yao. Today, as part of our civic engagement and action mini-series, where we speak to folks about expanding communities and spaces for sustained civic engagement and political participation, I'm joined by our co-host Isaac Neal, a political and security risk analyst. We chat briefly about his G2020 newsletter and his involvement in a number of other Singaporean initiatives and organisations before diving into his thesis titled Pragmatic Resistance as Counterconduct, Civil Society Advocacy in Singapore. He details how actors in the environmental and migrant worker sectors use non-confrontational and technocratic methods and shift between cooperation and contestation vis-a-vis the state. Given that we've we've done three episodes together, I, I, we probably should have done this first. And I and for listeners, it's all a bit different because at this time I'm still recovering from from COVID. It's not serious, but I sound a bit different. But better late than never. I I know you just started a new job, so maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your work first. Yep, sure. So yeah, thanks for doing this, Jinyao. And uh, yeah, sorry to hear that you're down with COVID. Hope you get better soon. I hope you feel better. I guess, yeah. So yeah, we should have done this from the start, but yeah, better late than never. So a little bit about myself, I guess. So I should probably start by saying all opinions in this podcast are my own. They don't represent that of my employer. Usual disclaimer. So yeah, for myself, I work in the political and security risk industry. So for the past one and a half years, I've been working as a security specialist. I had a health and security services firm. Sorry, but I'm not comfortable with naming the employer, but I'll just name like which industry they're in. So what we do is that we monitor security threats in the APEC region, the Asia Pacific region. We provide intelligence insights for MNCs mostly and their workforce. So like corporate security related stuff, but business continuity, COVID related queries, travel security and so on. So recently I've made I'm still with the company, the same company, but they've sort of like assigned me to one of the big tech firms as an embedded analyst. So what it means is that I'm still with my company, but I'm with this firm and like a dedicated analyst for them in the same field. So I deal with like travel security. So my, my job role is sort of expanded a little bit. Now I'm in charge of helping them manage like travel security program, but also a bit of what I've done previously. I'm advising their employees on what they should look out for when they travel, key dates that are sensitive security-wise, you know, like there's protests, conflicts, natural disasters, and so on. Yeah. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. And if I recall correctly, we really first connected properly in June 2020 about two years ago during GE 2020 when you ran a newsletter titled GE 20 Watch. So how did you get started with that and what responses, as I was always curious what responses you were getting, you know, putting out quite regularly, what responses you were getting from readers then? Yeah. So a little bit of background about the newsletter for the listeners. So it was a newsletter on Substack that I started in the run-up to the last January election. So that was in 2020. I started it around the beginning of 2020 when it was like ramping up towards the elections. The main motivation, I guess, was like there was a lot of information related to the elections that were coming up. 
And of course, this became even more overwhelming once COVID kicked in. So the elections were definitely delayed a little because of COVID. They had to figure out how to hold it and so on. But then because it was a primarily online election, there was just way too much information that people were not used to. So I thought I would use this newsletter to summarize main developments related to the elections, sort of provide explainers, a little bit of commentary of what was going on. And really using my background because my background is I come from a political science background. So yeah, I've studied this topic extensively and so on. So I thought I would use that knowledge to, you know, help people understand basically what's going on. In terms of responses, so I, I didn't have much subscribers at the start. You know, it's the usual thing where you release it to your friends, then they share it with their friends and so on. <laughs> but it slowly grew more popular at the end, I had over 1,000 subscribers. Actually, most of them, I didn't even know who they were. They just kept streaming in. The more popular posts reached a few thousand views uh, regularly. So quite a, still a small audience, small but dedicated. And the feedback that I got was that it provided good insights. Because for a lot of people, you know, they don't have time to read the news every day and so on. Uh, at the time, I was still doing my master's. So I had lots of time. Or rather, towards the end, not so much time, but yeah, more time than you know, normal working adult and so on. Yeah, so the feedback was that it was very useful. And I remember one of my friends, I think with my last post, so like after I posted the last post at the end of general elections, I shut it down entirely because I didn't, yeah, you know, I didn't want to continue doing it and saw no point. And one of my friends uh, messaged me and said, I like, really thank you for all you've done. This was a very important resource at the time when not many people were doing this. So yeah, I thought that was really good to hear and really sort of made the effort all worthwhile. Yeah, and, and both your professional academic background coming through, right? So you, we, we've been, you've been sharing about your, your professional background, political and security risk, your political science background. Our mini-series on the podcast, the three episodes we mentioned is titled Civil Engagement in Action, right? Through which we have spoken and we plan to speak to more folks about expanding communities and spaces for sustained civic engagement and political participation, right? Before I kind of go into the key for today's episode, with which is your thesis, I know personally you've been involved in a number of initiatives and organizations in the country, right? So maybe share a little bit about, to the extent you're comfortable about your engagement and participation in, in the space and, and how you've been involved in, in, in the past years. Yep, sure. So uh, I think I have to start by saying that I don't really consider, I still don't consider myself much of an activist. Yeah, I, I just like to write about activism and there are initiatives and organizations that I've been involved in, like you said, but, you know, I, I don't know. My idea of an activist is, you know, the people overseas who are like marching, they're putting forth public statements and that sort of thing. My activism or rather... My efforts at civic engagement tend to be more behind the scenes. I'm not too public about it. This is probably like the most public <laughs> that I'm being, but yeah. So yeah, I should just preface by saying that. Yeah. So I guess a few of the initiatives I were involved in in university. I was in NUS. Yeah, I did political science. I joined CAPE, C-A-P-E. So that was the Community for Advocacy and Political Education. And that was in UNUS, right? As in, it was affiliated with UNUS. Yeah, so it's affiliated with UNUS, but all NUS students could join. So there were not many NUS students, but I was part of it. I got roped in by friends and so on. Uh, that tends to be a theme uh, with 
how I'm involved in initiatives and so on. But anyway, so I felt it was a very unique organization because like you said, it's affiliated to Yale and US. They had a bit more autonomy than the other organizations in NUS. To be blunt, they were less sanitized, if you get what I mean, than other organizations. So uh, I thought like, yeah, it was a good initiative. What I did there was more on the editorial side. So I published like their newsletter and so on and helped out with ad hoc events that they organized. So yeah, that was that. I left that once I graduated, of course. Now recently, I've joined SG Climate Rally. So yeah, I don't think I have to explain uh, what that is, but over there, I'm also on the editorial side. So uh, helping out with uh, their blog. So they actually do have a blog. You can find it at sgclimaterally.com. Again, helping with a newsletter because that's a, yeah, a common theme in what I've been doing. I'm always more on the writing side. I come from a on writing base. I was trained as a journalist, uh, intern at the Straits Times and so on. So yeah, uh, how I came across SGCR, again, invited by friends, but also because I felt quite inspired from the initial rally in 2019. And it was at the height of, you know, the global youth protests led by Greta Thunberg and so on. I was quite inspired by that. Wanted to learn more and do what I could to contribute to environmental advocacy efforts. So yeah, overall, I think my motivations of joining these organizations, initiatives is pretty much uh, the same why I put you to do this podcast. Because I think that in a lot of these initiatives, I write about what they do and I write to inspire people to join. Because I think if people learn more and are exposed to different types of civic engagement and action and so on, then uh, I believe they'll be inspired to do the same. Yeah, and I should quickly mention here as a as a plug of sources, and it's a nice coincidence because we did speak to the Kate folks, which is the community for advocacy and political education during G twenty twenty, and we've spoken to one of the founding members of SG Climate Rally. I'll link both in the show notes after this episode as well, right? And in hearing just your involvement and how you explain those forms of participation as well, to me it makes your thesis make a little bit more sense in terms of where you were coming from, from a motivation standpoint, right? And I should mention, unfortunately, it's not public, but um, we'll talk a little bit about the thesis and then you can give us a bit of details about the, the content as well. Because as part of your Master of Science in Asian Studies at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, this RSIS and NTU, you wrote a thesis titled, I quote, Pragmatic Resistance as Counterconduct, civil society advocacy in, in Singapore. And that thesis was really based on a Rice Media article you wrote about youth activists. So to start, give us a sense of what that article was about. And the title obviously was Pragmatic Resistance as Counterconduct. So what was the article about and how did it motivate the thesis down the road? Yeah. So a little bit of background to how that article came about. So that article was about youth activists and I approached Rice Media as a freelance writer towards the end of 2018, I believe. Yeah, it's published in 2019. And it really emerged out of my own experience in Cape at the time because I saw that Cape was really gaining popularity. Uh, other universities had, had similar societies. So NTU had like the Nanyang A Political Society. There was the Inter-Uni LGBT Network. Uh, there were some fossil fuel divestment organizations in US as well. So I 
took those experiences, I spoke to several people in these organizations and asked them about their, you know, how they conceive of their activism and so on and what methods they were using. So it started off very broadly and I situated it within, you know, a broader history of student activism in the past. So you have the Chinese middle school riots in 1954, the, the predecessor to NUSU in the 70s and so on. I should know the name of that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, Yusu. Yusu, yeah. It's really similar to the, the abbreviation for the current one, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so that was the historical part. And one thing kept emerging as I was interviewing people for that for that article. So I realized they were talking about like a range of advocacy methods. And you know, some of them said, like, you know, we don't want to challenge the government, you know, we're not out to do that. We're just out to educate people and hope that they in turn make feel inspired to take action and so on. And yeah, this was quite surprising because, you know, I thought like youth activists would be like, uh, you know, very strident, you know, they're all about like, yeah, we believe strongly in what we're in and we'll confront the government, the authorities and so on. But they were very cognizant that um, more confrontational methods, so to speak, wouldn't work and would actually alienate people. So that's why they framed the activism that way. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. So after I did the article, then as I pursued my master's, I wanted to delve into this and develop this into a more rigorous academic article. Yeah, and we want to unpack that a little, right? Because the, the thesis itself, when I read it, you analyzed methods used by civil society actors in two sectors, in the environmental sector and the migrant worker sector. And in that piece, you theorize, and I quote for, for the listeners, Quote, a conceptual framework of pragmatic resistance as counterconduct that can be used to analyze the activities of other civil society groups in Singapore, as well as other countries where civil society actors are constrained politically. I know you spoke briefly to the idea of political constraint, and I think folks are cognizant of what you're referring to, but what did you mean by pragmatic resistance in the context of the civil society in the country in Singapore? Yeah, so this part is going to get a little bit more academic. It's going to really stretch we'll, my brain. We'll unpack not, that, don't worry. And I'll ask <laughs> yeah, questions. I'm not touch. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not touch academic stuff for some time. So yeah, I'll try my best. Okay, so pragmatic resistance as counterconduct. So uh, I think first, I want to acknowledge that pragmatic resistance as a concept is not new. So it was first theorized by Professor Linetra from the NUS Law Faculty. And her definition, I'll quote it, it's a collectively sustained strategy by gay activists who adjust their tactics according to how they perceive changes in law and political norms, pushing the boundaries of these norms while adhering to their limits to avoid sanctions. So in this case, the sanctions are like uh, the political constraints that yeah, we referred to earlier. I don't think I need to explain those, so I'll just go ahead. Yeah, but... So going back to these norms, these include like rejecting openly confrontational methods, the preservation of social stability to maintain economic growth, preserving the ruling party's political power and desire for legal legitimacy. So these are all of her article. And she used mostly LGBT groups in Singapore as a case studies for this. Now, so for my thesis, I wanted to build upon this because I thought this made a lot of sense to me and it actually matched what a lot of uh, 
the student activists that I talked to were referring to. You know, they reference a lot of the same things that Prof. Chua was talking about. So what I brought in were two concepts. So firstly, the concept of governmentality. So governmentality is a Foucaultian concept. So it relates to how political rationalities affect how individuals self-govern themselves. Okay, so in a less stream way, it's like how, how do individuals sort of conduct themselves according to a certain rationality that's pervasive throughout society. And in this case, I put forth that there is a pragmatic governmentality that shapes the conduct of civil society actors in Singapore, where their engagement with the state is very much technocratic, more relying on technical expertise, framing their actions as problem-solving and non-confrontational in nature. So very much in line, still very much in line with what Prof Chua said. And then I brought in another concept of counter-conduct. So another Foucauldian concept. So counter-conduct, so we talked about how governmentality affects these actors' conduct. So Now counter-conduct, Foucault defines it as the struggle against the processes implemented for conducting others. In other words, the will not to be governed thusly like that by these people at this price. Basically, what he was analyzing is how forms of resistance take on subtle forms of contestation rather than open protests or overt confrontation. So yeah, this include like people attempting to redefine what conduct means in the first place or relying on expert knowledge to foster what Foucault referred to as self-governing practices or forming you know, pressure groups outside the realm of conduct entirely. Okay, so yeah, so we have these concepts and tying it all together, uh, what I argued was that, okay, so civil societies, they frame their actions largely according to pragmatic norms. So like non-confrontation, preserving social stability, blah, 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 that uh, Prof. Chua had put forth and all that. And then they strategically adapt by pushing the boundaries of such norms while adhering to their limits. So this is the pragmatic resistance part. Now, I argue that these are forms of counterconduct that simultaneously both reproduce and contest the pragmatic governmentality that shapes civil society engagements. This in turn expands the space for collective action by civil society actors. So, for example, like actions like you know, tech, submitting research reports that rely on technocratic expertise and so on, still on the pragmatic side, but then they adjust their methods according to the situation while still maintaining these pragmatic norms and push the envelope. And in turn, this is a mode of counterconduct, you know, that uh, shows the state like, look, we are playing by your rules. We will advocate the way you want us to and so on. And we're doing it deliberately. But we also want to push against this. We want to expand the envelope and uh, try to explore new forms of activism. And in doing so, I argued that there were some limited gains that these organizations have done. And, and I, if I may kind of reflect on, on three quick points, right? One, the first is, a, is, a, is again a plug by Dan. He, when he recorded the episode, he was a PhD candidate. He's now Dr. Dr. Edgar Liao. He mentioned he, there was an episode about the history of, of youth and youth activism in Singapore. And he does refer quite actively to the concepts of Governmentality as well. 
alongside other Foucauldian concepts, I'll link that as well, came to the conclusion of how the Singapore state empowers youth with resources for development, but also at the same time, scrutinizing and policing the activism at the same time, right? So I'll link that in the first one. I think the second one, what brings to mind when you were sharing that, and we did have, we did mention this in our side conversation as well, is the book, The Art of Advocacy. I think that was published a few years ago, Essentially for listeners, it was, I believe, a collection of, of first-hand narratives and accounts by civil society actors in Singapore running the gamut across different sectors. And one thing that that I remember from that book is, and I've, I think I've written about it before, is how in particular the environmental groups, the environmental sustainability groups, they were talking about preserving certain spaces if the government was earmarking for development that I think embodied the form of pragmatic resistance the most, right? Because they were very cognizant of being at the table. They were very cognizant that sometimes their voices might not be heard, but at least over time, there will be incremental gains. So, so that reminded me of that. But also, which leads me to my third point, that was only a few years ago. And then increasingly, it feels like there is also pushback against those models, right? Because even in, in, so this is Pride Month as well, in thinking about Pink Dot as well, right? It's been around for a couple of years, a couple of decades or more. But then now there are criticisms within the movement that it's not inclusive enough. It's not really pushing the government in the right way, that it's too moderate in its movement. And then the counter pushback here would be that, hey, you need to do that if you're operating within the, the OB markers or within the constraints of, of this state, right? And so... What that brings to mind as a third point is that there is a diversity and range of forms of political activism and advocacy in Singapore that, that, that is emerging. And there is no, I feel, no set agreement on what is the most, most effective form of, of moving ahead in that sense also. Yeah. I, I know that was a lot, so I want to make sure you get a chance to respond before we dive deeper into your thesis as well. Yeah, so yeah, you talked about the art of advocacy. So that was actually a source that I used quite a bit throughout my thesis. Yeah, so I bought the book when it first came out and so on. I found it very useful, but also a great insight into activists because, and I think I mentioned it in my intro, scholars have written about uh, how the state constrains civil society activism and so on, but there's very little written on what methods these activists use. And in fact, that was one of the sort of uh, motivations of my thesis. I wanted to put forth the methods that they use and then analyze them in that sense. And yeah, you spoke about Ping Dot as well. So yeah, for Ping Dot especially, I think in the years since Prof Chua wrote about LGBT groups and so on, Ping Dot has actually been a very good test case for her argument. So Ping Dot, they grew... Like they started off more, I put it as cooperative because, you know, their initial efforts were more framed about, you know, we are nation building. LGBT community is still part of the nation. We are proud of Singapore and so on. But then they became much more confrontational, especially around 2018, 2019. You know, the ready for repeal movement where they were very explicit about it. Where the, you know, the dot and then the lighted upwards were just repeal, trees and ceremony, very straightforward. But then this year, then there was a little, I guess it's the first one, you know, after COVID, they want a bigger turnout. I feel it was a little bit rolled back in terms of like the whole themes and so on. Although the speeches during the rally were actually quite confrontational and very sharp. But overall, the event was still like 
a little bit toned down. You know, you can see in the words that were lit up, you know, Majula, back to the nation building theme so on. Yeah, so Ping Dot is a great, I would think it's like a great example of like this theory. However, in terms of, you know, tangible gains and so on, that's another good point because the main goal is to get the LGBT community more accepted. You can argue they are making strides towards that. But in terms of tangible legislation, where are we? 377 is not repealed. And in fact, I think recently there have been some developments like the uh, changes to the Adoption Act codifying that only heterosexual couples can adopt, which is actually a rollback in terms of LGBT rights. So yeah, I'm not sure. I guess going back to this, my theory can only put forth, you know, the methods that they use. And I've said that they make limited gains. But Pingdo is both an example of that, but also of how, you know, such methods limited in the first place. Yeah, we'll also quickly mention that one would be remiss not to mention that a lot of the forms of activism are also shaped in response to national developments as well. So you mentioned about, you know, the, the conversation about repealing 377A, that's one. The second was that a few years ago, there was also a fairly concerted movement amongst certain segments of those of the Christian and, and, and Islam, Islamic faith and the Where White movement as well as a very deliberate response to, to Pink Dot. And then the third one would be the, the question about, uh, there was also, this is I think further back where they were wondering whether they could expand the space from Hong Lim to, I believe it was Marina Bay Promenade. So they were saying, you know, the Hong Lim is really small and then if we could expand the movement and I think the state said no, or at least one of the end government state agencies said no. I probably have to check that. The curious thing is that in addition to the LGBTQ queer space, I think another space which you talk about in your thesis that faces this form of contestation is the environmental space, right? Because we talked about in out of advocacy, many of the environmental heritage groups are very slow and gradual and incrementalist in their approach, right? I'm going to invite you to first summarize the findings about the environmental sector first, um, what trends or themes you observed, and whether, especially since you've seen it up close at SG Climate Rally, whether you think those trends and themes have evolved or changed over time from the time you've, wrote your, you, you've written your thesis. Yeah, so yeah, that's a good point. So the Environmental Civil Society uh, and the reason why I chose them as one of like my case studies for my thesis uh, is because it's had a comparatively long history in Singapore in terms of activism, you know, perhaps only rivaled by like women's rights and so on. You have labor rights, but those have been pretty much quelled. So yeah, about that. So for environmental civil society, my thesis, I looked at the nature society and the community for Bukit Brown. So yeah, a group of organizations that sort of petitioned to save uh, the Bukit Brown Cemetery when it was earmarked for development. And so just to summarize, my findings was that I found the nature society, they were quite active in conservation efforts in the 90s, you know, for Sungai Below, the Lower Pierce Reservoir, and so on. And they use both more cooperative and more contestative methods. So yeah, they submitted research reports in a more technocratic form of activism. But when the moment one needed them to, they also went confrontational. They did a petition in the 90s. And this was a time when there was no like change.org. You know, they had to individually go door to door and get signatures. They also put public pressure on the government and so on. 
Then for the community for Bukit Brown, same thing. In fact, this was quite interesting because they, you know, they did the same thing as the Nature Society. And in fact, the Nature Society was, you know, part of this community as well. They submitted research reports to the government that basically said like there's environmental impact to redeveloping this, the heritage is important and so on. But they were thoroughly rebuffed. So at you know, one of those like closed door meetings with the government and these organizations, they were essentially told, look, the redevelopment is going ahead. We are just here to tell you more about it and so on. And so they were rightfully pissed off. So they essentially, they just released a public statement, you know, saying like, look, we are unhappy with this. Can the government answer our questions and so on? And they effectively made it a public debate. So that was the point where I, I saw it as like, you know, one step forward. They really pushed the boundaries there. It's not happened before, you know, or at least not so publicly. So, and they were successful in saving some of the graves in the cemetery. They achieved some concessions on the building of the highway over the cemetery and so on. And they gained seats on the committee to manage the heritage of the Bukit Brown site. So that was that for the examples that I explored in my thesis. And we see the same patterns emerging in the latest uh, environmental civil society groups and their activism. So things like fossil fuel divestment groups in universities, they hold closed door negotiations with the university admin, but they also launch petitions and so on. I think recently there was a coalition of these divestment groups made of students from unis. They released like a full length research report on it. So, and this was like a good blend of both like cooperative but contestative methods because, you know, this is a research report. It's meant to be more technocratic. You know, they've done the research and so on. But it's also contestative because they are directly confronting the university admin saying, these are our findings. Now, what are you going to do about it? And this is all out in public on social media, in the press and so on. I belong to SGCR, so I have to plug it. So SGCR also held the first ever rally yeah, first ever climate change related rally in Singapore in 2019. But they're also engaging coastal engagements, of course, together with other groups. And the youth activists, again, similar to the fossil fuel divestment activists, they released a statement from the youths, youth climate activists before COP26, the big climate change negotiation conference at the UN last year. So urging Singapore to take more climate action. And this report, again, well-researched, they consulted climate scientists and so on, but it's also much more confrontational than the methods used in the past. So I think in summary, I think environmental civil society is where you see what I would say is the best example, pragmatic resistance that we see so far. You know, groups from the start, from the nature society until now, they have, you know, been pushing the boundaries, but also strategically adapting their methods. These groups do not just like, uh, you know, go, go all out. You know, when they need to, they hold back, but they make sure that whatever they do, there's a strategy, they unite with other groups and so on. Uh, and I guess the plus side is, you know, the Singapore government actually acknowledges climate change is real, unlike some other governments. So there's less resistance from them on that part. And it's one arena where the government is not so much back on the entire issue, but more on the speed at which they adopt policies and so on. And activists just want them to go faster. Yeah. And 
in addition to the environmental sector, which you talked about, the second one is the migrant worker sector, right? Because maybe in the context of what's going on right now, it's probably the most straightforward, right? Because, so maybe tell us a bit about what you wrote in the, in the thesis. And I guess the obvious question will be, you know, how do you square those themes and findings you had a couple of years ago vis-a-vis what we've seen through COVID-19 in terms of movement restrictions and of course with the recent with the recent fracas with, with, with the migrant worker who was, I believe, denied a work permit extension approval. So yeah, the migrant worker advocacy sector is an interesting test case. So in my thesis, I explored the two oldest ones. So TWC2 and HOME. Yeah. So I found that they, you know, similar to environmental civil society, they engage in similar methods. You know, they release research reports, but they also do public campaigns, petitions, and so on. One difference was that, and this is based off a, a paper by another academic. So these NGOs directly intervene in the state's bureaucratic processes. So not just, you know, back channel talks or negotiations. They actually intervene in mediation efforts or like between disputes, workers and employers. And then they use that to advocate for their positions. So they come in and say like, "Uh, let's mediate here. Oh, by the way, there's this gap present in this policy that we think the ministry should look at and so on. And yeah, so yeah, the conclusion of it on my thesis was pretty much the same as the environmental civil society groups. So they use cooperative methods sometimes, back-channel negotiation and so on. But when they needed to, they went confrontational. So examples are like when they release research reports or to the public, to the media, or they present to international conferences on labor rights and so on and say that, you know, we need more labor rights for the migrant workers in Singapore. Or when they say, they write form letters to the media saying like, you know, the government... Uh, needs to change this policy and so on. And segue into this. So one example of that is how TWC2, they were actually the first organization to highlight what was going on in the migrant worker dormitories during COVID. They said, you know, it's a ticking time bomb because, you know, they're too close. There's no safeguards. There's going to be an explosion of cases. And then, true enough, it happened. So, and now moving on to what happened during COVID. So, you know, the whole thing with the explosion of cases in dormitories and so on. I actually found that I think these organizations, they were thrown full in into crisis management mode. And in fact, they, they sort of had no choice but to cooperate with the government because you needed all hands on deck for the lack of a better term. You know, the government could not do it on their own. They needed the help of these organizations. And the organizations had to cooperate because if they didn't, then the alternative is they get frozen out and they cannot help these workers. And that is their main goal. So they needed to do that. So it was mostly shifted to, you know, more cooperative methods and so on. Yeah. But there was still quite good development in this sphere. We saw new migrant worker groups emerge. We saw a migrant support coalition. We had a yes in my backyard movement and so on, which was very nice to see. But, and here I move on to the movement restrictions. So they were subject to the most stringent movement restrictions among any group in Singapore. And they've only been relaxed very recently. And in fact, they are they do still need to apply for passes to visit certain places. So, I mean, it's not relaxed entirely. And I was a bit surprised that 
you know, NGOs didn't adopt much more, put it, more confrontational methods for this. Because from what I understand on my end, I spoke to some of uh, the people involved in this sector. Yeah, so I can't name who I spoke to and all that, but yeah, they were telling me, you know, behind the scenes, organizations were pretty much united on one thing. They were telling them the ministry, why are they not released? And their opinions, sorry, not their opinions, they were backed up by public health experts who were very upfront in the media. In fact, more upfront than I've ever seen the public health experts <laughs> be. You know, they were saying, look, in terms of the, on an epidem- epidemiological basis, you know, they're the most vaccinated group. All they do is go to work and come back to the dorms, you know? So why aren't they being released when the rest of Singapore are free to roam about? I think at the time, yeah, Singaporeans could go out in groups of five and then became groups of 10 and then virtually no restrictions while there were still limits on the migrant workers. So I was a bit surprised here that the groups didn't adopt more confrontational methods. Uh, I think, you know, people should, you know, study, study this and so on. I wonder if, you know, a citizenship element plays a part for this because, you know, these NGOs are mostly run by Singaporeans and so on. And there is, uh, there are some organizations which have migrant workers as part of their, as part of their organization. But, and here I go on to what you mentioned, the most recent example of MOM deporting a migrant worker activist. So I don't want to really comment on the full extent of the case. But what I will say is that looking at the, how the statement was worded and so on, you know, they use phrases like, you know, we have renewed work pass despite this activism and so on. On one part, I thought like, you know, especially the last line of the statement, you know, they say he has overstayed his welcome. I thought that was, in my opinion, immensely insensitive. Okay. And I think in my opinion, the statement actually shows what the state thinks of uh, activism in this sector, which is that, you know, uh, if you're not Singaporean, you're just here to work and so on. So you can go as far as we'll allow you to. But remember, we hold the power to renew the work passes and so on. So you step out of line, yeah, off you go and so on. So I think while there were some developments in this sphere, you know, migrant workers joining these organizations, I think this will have a very chilling effect on them. And I think the migrant worker organizations themselves will look at this and say, okay, you know, we might need to take a chill for a while, try not to push too hard and so on. So there's definitely going to be a little bit of chilling effect in this sector. Yeah, which is which is consistent with what been you've been writing, you you wrote, you've you've written and 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 that's talking about it, right? Because essentially you've been talking about this mix of non-confrontational and technocratic approach and this shifting between cooperation and contestation, right? In the migrant worker space, something you alluded to without commenting on the legality and pol- politics of it all, what's undeniable is that whether you agree or not, the groups I think some of them are making a more concerted effort to yield space to the community members themselves who are the migrant workers themselves, right? You see this also in the, with folks who work with low-income households as well, right? Rather than take over that process, how do you respect the agency of the individuals in the community and actually yield space to these individuals? And I don't think most of the groups have quite figured that out yet. As in, I think it's very well-intentioned. You know, of course, within the migrant worker space, the notion of legality and the work permit and all these things. And then with folks in the low-income community about bandwidth and the ability to keep them engaged and so on and so forth. But I think this opens up a lot more questions than answers. And 
I know we talked about the limitations, but I wanted to end with where we started, right? And pull together your research findings and personal experience. Right? How would you frame or position the concept of pragmatic resistance in relation to your own civil engagement and political participation? And in this sharing as well, if you'd like to also, you've we've alluded to this throughout the conversation, what do you think are some of the limits of that approach? This non-confrontational, technocratic, and this shift between cooperation and contestation vis-a-vis the state in Singapore? Yeah, so on the limitations part, there's a very big limitation staring, well, it stared at me throughout the whole process of writing a thesis, which is that what's the boundary between non-confrontational and confrontational? It changes all the time, correct? So what's the difference between cooperation and co-optation? So in my thesis, I, I sort of define it by leaving out the government so the government organized non-governmental organizations, which is a very oxymoronic term, but yeah, basically like, you know, those NGOs that have direct links to state bodies and so on. So I left them out because, you know, with the institutional link, I said, there's no way they can be confrontational even if they wanted to. Everything has to be approved by the agency. But, and there are some gray areas here. So what about NGOs that are led by people that, have very close links to the state and so on. You know? Yeah, that sort of thing. Another potential limit is, you know, I wanted to represent, you know, civil society methods, how they, how, you know, pragmatic governmentality shapes how they act, how through their own actions they push the envelope. But at the end of the day, the government is still one big black box, you know? We can't really decipher much of what goes in and they hold most of the power. And in fact, you know, going back to the migrant worker activism, once you have non-citizens in the picture, yeah, you can pretty much give up any hope of making progress on that front because the government controls, they hold all the chips there. You know, if you're a non-citizen, you know, better not engage in activism and so on. So yeah, at the end of the day, I think as much as we want to theorize, you know, how civil society actors function in these kind of environments, it's still very much contingent on the political opportunities available. And, you know, if the government, they decide that, uh, you know, okay, we're going to put up a brick wall and so on. All the pragmatic, all the effort, all the pragmatic efforts in the world won't help because it's like you're banging a toy hammer against it. You know, you can't break it down no matter how much you want. So for yourself, how do you position that vis-a-vis your own involvement and engagement? So yeah, I guess for myself while writing this, I have to admit I was very consciously reflecting upon my own my own engagement and my own comfort with political participation. So I think for me myself, I'm yeah, I think of myself as a pragmatic person, you know. I mean, a lot of times I, you know, I make the decisions that are more safe and so on. And even though I have all these ideals and so on, I make sure that uh, I play it safe first, you know, before trying to push for these ideals and so on. So I have to agree with my own argument and say like, you know, pragmatic resistance works and so on. And uh, I think there's some merit in a way to being flexible and changing methods to fit the situation. And I think it's true that Singaporeans today are still quite conservative. You know, they don't like to radical forms of activism or, I mean, in the first place, activism is still very much a dirty word, you know. In fact, I think the frame, the our podcast series itself, we call it civic engagement, not civic activism, political action and so on. It can mean anything, you know. But I think 
yeah, it's good because it doesn't have to be confrontational. Going back to what the student activist in the Vice Media article I wrote, what they told me, it doesn't have to be confrontational, it can be educational. And I believe any social media, uh, sorry, any social movement needs to build like a white tent to achieve gains. Yeah. So if you alienate people before you even get started, then you're not going to get anywhere. That's the harsh truth of it in Singapore. So I guess in summary, like I see my own engagement and political participation as putting this theory into practice. I'm consciously trying to expand the spaces for civic engagement. And ultimately, you know, if I have to be confrontational, it's because the situation demands it. You know, at the end of the day, you have to put the groups of people that you advocate for first. And then, so there's no need to be too dogmatic about it. As long as you stay true to their principles and so on, put the people or causes that you're advocating for first. Yeah, things will just fall in place from there. And and I guess what you are, and on the final, what you are alluding to and I think we're hoping to cover in the subsequent many, many episodes is the sheer heterogeneity of, of, of activism or types of activism, right? Like at the organizational level, different, even in this simple notion of contestation and cooperation, right? The degree and extent to which and over time that can shift, how folks use non-confrontational and technocratic methods might shift as well. It's a combination with a lot of things. One of the simple things in response to what you said is timing the confrontational response, right? Like you can be cooperative and technocratic to a certain extent. Then how do you make that calculated decision as to when is it the right moment to take this public or to take this at a larger scale, right? And this applies both to the environmental space when, you know, the government says it's just a formality and for the climate space as well, right? When it's like you've been banging at the door for such a long time, when do you mobilize for a larger movement, for instance, like at Hong Lim, for instance, right? So that just speaks to the heterogeneity at the organizational level. Individually as well, folks decide how they want to frame their involvement to a different extent as well, right? It's very easy to criticize someone as being too extreme or being too conservative or conservative in the sense of not doing enough. The fact is that different folks balance different risks and different preferences in their own lives as well. And so I think these are variances and diversity we hope to explore in subsequent episodes as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And yeah, I hope we'll be able to explore much more forms of engagement in the subsequent episodes. I agree. And then we probably should have done this right from the start to frame the previous three episodes. But, you know, as I said in the beginning, better late than never. And then unfortunately, we can't link to, but, I, I'm guessing folks who are interested could probably get in touch with you who might want a copy of the thesis. And so, yeah. And then we will look forward to the next episode for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Can, they can approach me anytime. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.